Hi, everybody, and welcome to a full house edition of the South American Football Show. I'm your host, Austin Miller, and on today's show, we will be breaking down the first match day of the best tournament in world football, the Conmebol World Cup qualifiers. Big matches, big storylines, plenty of controversy, as you can probably expect. And I'm excited to have a full panel with me. I think we have a full five-a-side team if we needed it. Adam Brandon in Santiago, Chile. I'll introduce you first. Adam, I won't go through the pleasantries of asking how you are because I imagine the answer isn't too great, but it's great to have you on the show and we're looking forward to your perspective on match day one. Yeah, I'm ready to rant on this episode, I think it's fair to say. Uh, I wasn't in a particularly happy place before that game (laughs) and certainly aren't after it. Spoilers, Adam. Spoilers. Maybe some people haven't seen the game. Uh, Simon Edwards in Medellin, Colombia joins me as well. Simon, I imagine the mood in your country is good. You're doing well. Good day all around. Yeah, all good. Although a bit worried that Chile might spoil things again. Last time we were feeling quite good about ourselves uh, with the Copa America performances. Suddenly Chile came out of nowhere to to ruin the mood. So there's a bit of anticipation, a bit of worry for the for Tuesday's game. But but so far so good. And uh, yeah, looking forward to talking about this amazing qualifying campaign, which we always enjoy. Also happy to be joined by our Ecuadorian football expert, Javier Zavala, Javier, it's been a long time since we've been on a podcast together. It's great to be back at it and looking forward to having you on. How are you, man? <laughs> Thank you, Osina. I I will say that it's great to be back, A and B. I'm definitely in a better mood than I was Thursday night. Like thinking about the game with a calm, cold, breezy head is better than like getting all those frustration and angry feelings that I was feeling on Thursday. So definitely in a better mood today. Looking forward for this. Glad to hear it. Glad to hear it. And our final member of this week's show, I'll go just down the road a little bit, maybe more of a bit than it was a few weeks ago. Tom Nash here in Buenos Aires with me, not with me physically, but Tom, how are you? Uh, Looking forward to having your perspective on the Argentine side of things. Been a while since we've been on a show together. It has been, yes. Thanks for having me on and uh, thanks for introducing me. And yeah, I'm very much looking forward to it. I'm uh, as the listeners probably know, I'm more of a Copa Libertadores man than an international football man normally. But um, no, there's undoubtedly a sense of um, excitement and just general intrigue about how these qualifiers are going to play out. So yeah, I'm delighted to be here to share my opinions on Argentina and well, hear more about the other games that I didn't watch during the week. You get to listen to the podcast before anybody else, Tom. That's pretty good, right? <laughs> exactly. That's the plan. Well, let's start with, I think, what was the biggest storyline from this week's set of matches. That's Uruguay 2, Chile 1 in Montevideo. Adam, I'll come straight to you. Uh, I think a draw would have been a tough result for Chile to swallow, given how well they played in the second half. The fact that they then gave up a late winner to Uruguay and the controversy that came with a penalty that was awarded and taken by Luis Suarez in the first half for Uruguay and then a penalty that wasn't awarded to Chile when the score was 1-1 in the second half. Uh, a lot to break down with this match. What did you make of the Chile performance? And while you're at it, why don't you give us your opinion on what you made of the, the penalty decisions or lack thereof? Yeah, first off, you know, overall pretty pleased with the Chile performance. And, and I think most Chileans are as well. But do you remember when the pro-VAR brigade promised us a fairer and therefore more enjoyable spectacle. 
because I certainly do, even though that feels quite a long time ago now. And even if they can boast a 6% improvement in correct decisions, for me, the fluidity and the magic of football has kind of been lost and can't be replaced whilst VAR is in the game. When Alexis Sanchez scored in this game, I couldn't even celebrate. Usually, I'd be going running around, screaming and shouting, going crazy. But my experiences with VAR in the four years now, I think it's been in place in various tournaments that I've, I've watched, has just made me paranoid. I, I, just, I just see a goal, and, it, and if I think there's even a suspicion of, say, an accidental handball, or maybe a, uh, you know somebody's hair is slightly offside... I, I just, I, you know, the instinct in me doesn't go doesn't go off to celebrate the goal. I I I find myself worrying that oh, if I celebrate, it's going to be in vain. That is a great frustration for me. I've had to suffer it various times with Chile already. Um, Confederations Cup 2017, the Copa America last year. Also, when I went back to England last year, I saw Norwich in the Premier League, and one game I attended at Carrow Road was completely ruined by the VAR experience for me. And as, and as I say, it's kind of scarred me for life when it comes to this, really. Um, yeah, I've, I've basically dedicated my life to football in, in, in recent years. Uh, so I can't really say, like, oh, I'm going to walk away from it or I'm done with it, even no matter how much it frustrates me. But it, it does actually hurt me a little bit what's happened to the game. That might sound pathetic to some people. But it, it does generally, it really genuinely annoys me. Um, and it isn't just VAR, it's, it's other things at the moment which is going on in the game. Like five substitutions in a competitive match in, in World Cup qualifying. Five! That's literally half the outfield can be changed in a competitive match. In a sport that relies on rhythm and fluidity for it to work. You know, for me, this is a tragedy. And lastly, and last but not least, of course, is the is the handball law in, in the game at the moment and, and where that stands. In a lot of ways, that's the final straw and why I'm going on, on to this rant. Um, you know, so often the punishment isn't fitting the crime. And as we saw in this game, once again, you know, the, the penalty was introduced to football, you know, about in the 1890s, I think it was, to basically stop outfield players cheating by stopping the ball with their hand going directly into the goal. You know, it was a very deliberate action. But but these days, it it, it seems like any kind of infraction of the of the of the of the of the arm or the hand touching the ball means a penalty. Apart from <laughs> in the last few minutes when Chile needed it to be that way, it, it wasn't. Uh, there's there's actually a good podcast episode on 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 a podcast called uh, Football Today, which came out just a few days ago which which kind of talks about this issue and and you know one of the suggestions on there is, is something i've said on twitter recently as well where i think some of the controversies with the strict handball rule how, how it's being inter- interpreted at the moment by referees you know i think a lot of them it, i think they're more worthy of indirect free kicks than they are penalties you know the punishments aren't fitting the crime Anyway, in this game, for clarity, neither of the handball handballs which were reviewed by VAR, VAR in my opinion, were handball uh, decisions. Um, I personally wouldn't have given either. But if you give one, I think you should give the other. And today, Commodore released the footage 
um, of VAR team coming to the decision on both the penalties. And I noticed that on the Uruguay one in the first half, the decision is viewed at multiple angles and they keep using it until they find him guilty, basically. And on the Chile one in the 87th minute, when the scores are 1-1 in a half that Chile mostly dominated, they just look at one angle and they don't even discuss some of the key elements of the laws in, 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 in the decision going into it. So, yeah, I, I didn't like how they were speaking about the decisions for me. They're a bit too animated. I would have liked to have seen the VAR team be a lot more calmer in, in their decision-making. It, it seemed a little bit hectic to me, a little bit chaotic. I suppose fair play to them for releasing the footage, but for me, it hasn't inspired that much confidence. Anyway, you still with me? Still here, still here. <laughs> um, well, since October last year, there was you know, one of the kind of themes in Chile and Chilean society, unfortunately, has been sort of injustice and anger in, in society with everything going on here. And there was a sense from players and fans um, that this sort of game sort of added to it. You know, obviously, it's nowhere near as serious, of course. It's, it's just football, but there was hope that, you know, this sort of game, if Chile could get a result, you know, might just lift morale a bit. It's a big month here in Chile, exactly a year on from when the social uprising began. And also, at the end of this month, Chile will have a referendum on whether, whether or not they will have a new constitution in the country. So it is quite a tense political environment at the moment. And, and you know, the protests have started back up again. So there was already sort of a lot of anger bum, bu- bubbling under the surface. And I, th- and I think this game sort of brought it out in all of us here in, in Chile who who care passionately about the country and also care passionately about football. Anyway, let's get on to sort of the, the bits of the game. Um, the game started off with Chile looking bright. Um, Alexis Sanchez, in within I think the first five minutes, had a fairly decent chance, but he ended up delaying the shot a little bit too long. And in the end, uh, you know, he lost the angle on it and, and Campana saved comfortably from him in the end. Um, then Uruguay, they then had probably their best spell of the match between, I would say, 10 and 40 minutes, where they had various spells of pressure. Valverde hit the bar. Um, that was quite unlucky. Um, and they also had a series of corners that Chile had to deal with. Chile couldn't really clear their lines very well. Um, and and those spells of pressure basically ended up with the aforementioned penalty that we've already spoken about with Luis Suarez. You know, for me, yeah, it, it, it wasn't a penalty. But yeah, yeah I, I just think if you slide in like that, uh, as, as Diaz did there, um, I, I just don't see where else he could put his arm and also the ball deflects off his body up to his arm. He has absolutely no time to react to try and get his hand out of the way. And it doesn't really affect, you know, the, the ball wasn't going anywhere either, really. It would have been easily cleared. So, I, I, yeah, as I say, I just don't see how you can give that a penalty. Um, and even under the new laws, but I was reading IFAB today, and, yeah, it does, people were saying, oh, it doesn't mention this this thing about um, it deflecting off a player's body onto the hand that doesn't exist anymore, but it does. It's still there in in the laws, 
What it does say, though, is that if the hand is in, the, in a natural, unnatural position, so basically the arm is sort of above shoulder height, which it kind of was here because he's sliding on the ground, um, then that rules kind of doesn't count from what I can look see from the from the rules. But for me, very, very harsh. Doesn't make any sense to anybody well, who's ever played the game. Huh? Where's the hand supposed to go in that situation? Exactly. You you can't put it anywhere else, can you? Like you can't yeah, slide you can't slide across the the ground with your hands behind your back. So <laughs> just just is nonsensical to me. Maybe if it hits his hand directly, I can see it more. But the fact it actually comes off his body first is it is where I have a real problem with it. Anyway, yeah, Chile went behind. Luis Suarez converted that penalty, no problem. Um, but I thought that Chile immediately showed good signs after going behind. You know, they, they got on the front foot quickly, um, and going in at half time, I thought, you know, this match is still there to be won. And at the start of the second half, they were well on top and in control of the match. Um, Diaz was unlucky not to win a penalty after being brought down in the box. And that's another decision which hasn't really been spoken about that much. It's kind of been, um, uh, lost in all the handball debate. But basically, the Uruguay player fouls Diaz. And for me, I can't, Nicolas Diaz, that is. And I can't see how the referee hasn't given it. You know, there's a clear touch on, on Diaz. And he's going after the ball. Um, he could have reached it on the byline, in my opinion. So, yeah, that was a very odd decision. I, 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 there's definite contact there. I've got to say also that Arturo Vidal in this game was especially very busy and effective in midfield. Man of the match to me. Very impressive performance. Possibly one of his best I've seen ever in a in a Chile shirt, to be honest. And very unfortunate to be on the losing side. And, and his dominance in midfield in this game, especially at the start of the second half, basically forced Tobias to make changes. Firstly, to stop Chile's rhythm, I think, was very important. So he made a series of changes. Um, and also the fact that once Alexis Sanchez equalised after great work by Arangis, Larocco were very much on top in, 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 in this game. And you've got to say that the changes did work, that they did manage to break Chile's rhythm. Um, and I think it was also helped by some more biased refereeing as well, where there was a couple of times Chile tried to break. They were clearly fouled. I put one of them on Twitter the other day. Some some listeners might have seen that, where Alexis Sanchez is basically wrestled to the ground with his shirt almost coming off of his body by uh, Godin. But somehow the referee, despite looking straight at it, doesn't give a foul. No idea why. There was a similar incident with Vargas as well minutes later. I just feel that these various breaks in the game meant that they lost their rhythm in the last 15 minutes. And uh, apart from that penalty shout, a penalty shout basically won by Victor Davila, who, who came on and, and, and looked energetic and bright. He, he might start against Colombia on, on Tuesday. He's having a good season in, in Mexico this year. Um, it felt like there, there was a little bit of momentum with the home side in the last few minutes. Uruguay then you know, started lumping some balls in the box. Chile with pretty much a second choice defence for this game as well. I think it's worth adding, including a goalkeeper, you know, a defence that had never played bo- uh, together before. And I thought they performed fairly well, but in a couple of key moments, you know, they, they did make mistakes. And 
Sierra Alta heading a ball straight out to the edge of the box uh, where Maxi Gomez was to, and Uruguay's fifth sub basically struck an excellent shot to win the game. Um, maybe Arias could have got done better. It kind of went under him, but it was going at some pace. But yeah, overall, I thought Chile played a mostly intelligent game. The young and experienced back line, like I said, did pretty well considering um, Chile were without first um, five first-teamers in, in total. Paul Gar in uh, defensive midfield was another really big miss as well. He'd be really missed against Colombia on Tuesday because he was probably man of the match against them in the Copa America quarterfinal last year when, when Chile dominated that game. Overall, it's considered a good performance in Chile, as, as I said at the start, and something to build on. And there, you know, there is some optimism going into the game against Colombia on Tuesday, although everybody will be nervous about VAR once again, I suspect. Simon, for you, before we move on from this match, I know you saw a good deal of it. What did you make of the Uruguayan perspective of this? They come out of this with three points. It's a good start against a difficult opponent, but there's certainly a lot of room for improvement for Tavares' side, I think it's fair to say. Yeah, for me, I think Brian Rodriguez was um, the most interesting, the most dangerous player for Uruguay. Um, but we've seen Uruguay moving moving away from being, you know, full defenders, full midfielders, and then Suarez and Cavani up front on their own. We've seen them increasingly look to kind of bring some of the midfield further forwards to connect. And in this game, they played Suarez as the lone striker with uh, De Arasqueta, uh, De La Cruz, and Rodriguez in behind. At times, for me, they kind of were quite disjointed, but in a different way. Uh, it was Valverde and Betancourt, and then quite a big gap between the the four f- forward players. So I think they're still trying to find that that connection, that balance in midfield. I think Rodriguez was good, but you know I do think that they looked a little disjointed uh, and a little isolated at times. Whereas for me, Chile, um, I, I worry a little bit that they don't have uh, a Luis Suarez in attack. Uh, Vargas has always done well for Chile, um, but he doesn't quite have that killer instinct. At times, he had a half chance and and waited for those to, those behind to catch up instead of just throwing off a shot and seeing what happens. So that's a slight concern. But for me, Chile were quite efficient with the ball. Obviously, there's players coming back in. Pulgar is very important. So for me, I think Chile in many ways can take a lot of positives from this game, whereas I think Uruguay, we have perhaps slightly higher expectations with some of the good quality in midfield, but it still feels a bit of a work in progress. Um, And uh, I think defensively, they weren't incredible. I think there's definitely a chance to get at them at the back and they looked a little disjointed connecting midfield to attack. At times it was kind of two midfielders and then a gap and then four kind of forwards. So uh, a work in progress for, for Uruguay, I think, Promising signs for for Chile, uh, and I think Tuesday is going to be a very very interesting game between Colombia and Chile. Simon, just to add up on what you just said, I I agree with you that in regards of Uruguay, the performance might be a little. I want to use disappointing, but concerning could also be a, a the right word. Like no one is a bigger fan of the Uruguay style of play than me, right? Like I'm a huge Simeone fan, I'm a huge Tavares fan, and I get it. But Uruguay's midfield has to step up, right? They are in the right position in regards of talent and age to take over the team, right? There's no reason why the team needs to still be dominated by a a defense that includes Godin or an attack that includes Suarez, right? This is the moment in which 
you have to change and modernize the team a little bit, right? Taking advantage of the great midfielders that you have, right? So reduce the pressure on your aging defense and your aging attack and increase the pressure on players that are ready to step up, right? There's a list of Uruguayan midfielders that played and that didn't play that can go into the team and have an elite performance. So I agree with you, Simon. I think that we should expect more of Uruguay and they need to deliver more. And that's the thing, Javier. We saw that all the way back in 2018 at the World Cup. That was the big question is, okay, is this the moment now where Uruguay takes that step forward and goes from that defense and attack and adds that midfield in between it? They didn't do it in Russia in 2018. And now we're sitting here at the backside of 2020 and they still haven't quite gotten that figured out. And this is probably still an Uruguay side that can qualify for the World Cup playing the Uruguayan way that that we've come to expect from them. But at some point, like you say, the talent that is there in that midfield has to kind of put it all together and, and take that next step if they're going to be really well and truly in it at a World Cup in Qatar in 2022, or if they want to make this qualification cycle that much easier for them as a team and as a program. I would just add as well to pretty much similar to what Simon said, that you just get the sense that it's the beginning of the sort of changing of the guard for Uruguay. You know, we, how many years in a row do we get used to seeing Cavani and Suarez up front for them? Um, obviously, Cavani wasn't there this time. So you just got the sense that we're not in full revolution for Uruguay and, you know, complete changing of the generations, but we're beginning to get a glimpse of what that process will look like. You know, they were trying to integrate some some debutants like De La Cruz played his first game for the senior team. Uh, De Arasquieta, who's, you know, he's played many times for them, but he's still a young guy. And Suarez just looked a bit isolated up front on his own at times. So, yeah, I think we're sort of beginning to see what this, uh, what renewal will look like for Uruguay over the next three or four years. Yeah, just a, just a quick one, because Suarez celebrated in the face of Sierra um, when that Uruguay winner went in. And um, yeah, I, I don't think that will be forgotten in Chile in a hurry. And, and Chile and Uruguay will face off, of course, on the last match day um, in this cycle. So there could still be another twist in this Chile-Uruguay rivalry to come. Right. Well, let's move on now from that Uruguay-Chile match that dominated the headlines and dominated the conversations to another match that was of high quality and produced a result that I think will go a long way in towards maybe how these two sides will will see their qualification play out. That was Paraguay 2, Peru 2, and Asuncion. Uh, Peru picking up a point late after Paraguay had battled back after going down a goal. Simon, a result that I think with all of the questions and uh, issues that have been brought up coming into these qualifications, a global pandemic, these sides haven't played together for, you know, 11 months in, in most cases. Both teams will probably be happy with a point, but they'll definitely want to kick on as, you know, this qualification cycle kind of goes forward. So what did you make of, of this match and what are kind of the big takeaways for you? Yeah, I mean, uh, so 2-2, two, two, um, it looked as though Paraguay had it won. Uh, the commentator even going, well, this is a good start for Paraguay, taking three points. And then suddenly uh, Carrillo scored a, a late uh, late equaliser to make it 2-2. Two, two. I mean, it could have been a very different game 
uh, probably should have been a very different game because um, Zambrano with the <laughs> he tried to take Almiron's head off after about 15 minutes. And I mean, I haven't seen, I, I'm surprised Almiron wasn't unconscious um, because it was the wildest elbow I've ever seen in my life. Uh, and context, Simon, that would have been a 15 yard penalty in American football. So. <laughs> I mean, I mean, it would be a prison sentence on the street. I mean, it was it was ridiculous, and he got a yellow card, so it's not like the referee didn't see it. He just decided uh, a right elbow to the face at full speed um, is is a is a bookable offence. Yeah, have you seen have you seen the Commodore VAR footage for that decision? No, no, it's, it's very odd because it's like they seem like they just consistently say over and over again, yeah, it's definitely a yellow card. It's definitely a yellow card. Like they're trying to convince themselves that it's definitely not a red card and they never mention that it might be a red card. But it, it seems like the decision was a yellow card. And then they've, and I think this is the problem with VAR sometimes. They try to justify a decision, um, not by looking at it with fresh eyes necessarily, but just by um, doubling down on what the original decision is. And, yeah, I think I think with this one it was it was it was just very odd um, conversation because um, they're basically saying yeah he did put his elbow in his in his neck um, but that's just a yellow card right and <laughs> my understanding is no that's a red card especially at the speed that it took place. Yeah, I mean you talk about dangerous play. I, I don't think you could do something much more dangerous on a football pitch. I, I, it'd be hard to imagine. Anyway, um, yeah, Zambrano got away with that one. Um, it was a game. It was a, all of the goals came from uh, crosses that fell beyond all of the defenders. Um, <laughs> the, uh, Carrillo volleyed in with an acre of space uh, for the for the Peru opener, uh, and then Angel uh, Romero came off the bench and immediately scored. Well, first, um, cut Angel Romero. Where are those long flowing locks from a Romero twin? I barely recognized him, Simon. I mean, he's got the Paraguay serious now. This is serious Romero. No no nonsense Romero. Straight off the bench, uh, scored a volley and then scored another volley. And it looked as though the, the game was won for Paraguay. Uh, and then a, ga- a goal came out of nowhere, really, for Peru. I mean, I think they would have... Uh, they would have taken the draw. Then going behind, they suddenly woke up and, and they uh, hit back with five minutes to go. In terms of the game, you know, I think... I think Peru don't have a number nine. Uh, they were lucky that Carrillo was on very clinical goal-scoring form, took his two chances very well. Um, they played Rui Diaz from the start, but obviously Paulo Guerrero is is very important for Peru uh, as the focal point in attack. Um, I'm a little concerned with the, the defences from both of these sides. Uh, these are two teams who I thought would perhaps lean a little bit on a solid defensive organisation, particularly Paraguay. So to concede two goals and two fairly sloppy goals as well is probably a concern. Um, so I, I think these are two teams that, that could go either way still. I, I think they need some more in attack. Both both teams really need a, a number nine to come forward. And it's strange to say that in a game that finished 2-2, but I think they looked a little bit um, a little bit blunt in attack. Uh, and also, I think both of the goals that, that each team conceded came from uh, defensive lapses as well. So I think these teams are built around solid organisation um, as opposed to particular superstar defenders. And uh, today, they, that organisation wasn't quite there. So 
Um, yeah, an interesting game. I think Paraguay will be disappointed to have let it slip very late, but a game really defined by by a couple of uh, defensive lapses each side. It's the type of result, Simon, that I think, again, with everything that went into these matches beforehand, I don't think either side is going to be terribly disappointed with a point. But as you said, opportunities for more, particularly for Paraguay, taking the lead with less than 10 minutes to go, that they didn't finish that off. It's the type of thing that, you know, come match day 15 and 16, maybe we're looking back at these two points that Paraguay maybe left on the table here um, as part of the reason why maybe they end up going to an inter- into a playoff rather than straight to Qatar or something along those lines. Something to, to kind of file away. Uh, Javier, what, what did you, did you see much of this match and what did you kind of make of, of the two sides here? <laughs> Thank you. Just, I, I was about to jump in. I just, I just want to highlight that Simon is completely right about uh, stating that the sloppy defense defen- definitely marked the game, right? Um, especially for those that Paraguayan defense after a, a very long history and legacy of great Paraguayan defenses in general, right? Those two goals, right? Like in the first Peruvian goal, Right, a clear mistake by Gomez with the header. And then no one is, like like Simon mentioned, not even an acre next to Carrillo. Right? How can he be so by himself inside the box? That's unforgivable. But in the second goal, the Peruvian second goal, it's probably the worst. You have two Peruvian players inside the box, six Paraguayan players inside the box, and then you have a clear header. That's... Like, I'm pretty sure, like, players like Celso Ayala and Chilabert are very angry about their national team right now, right? That's something that in the past would have never happened. Well, and that's one thing, Javier, that I think is interesting. I like Gustavo Gomez as a defender. I think he's he's class. I think for the level that he plays at with Palmeiras, he's one of the best individual defenders in South America. But he is that type of player that has those moments when you just – kind of look like what are you doing and and the first goal for Carrillo absolutely that you know he's got to clear that ball uh you have to be able to be in a position where a cross like that doesn't hurt you as a, as a side collectively and and that is the kind of thing that if you're going to attempt to play the style that that we think Paraguay are going to attempt to play if you're in a qualification cycle that is going to be as tight as we expect it to be those individual plays from individual players that you're counting on, like Gomez, like the rest of that defense, those have to be clean for Paraguay if they're going to have a chance to be in this World Cup and, and, and you know, marching on towards a playoff. And also in that regard, right, Paraguay and Peru are one of the teams that are working under the tightest margins, right? Like they don't, they cannot afford to lose a point here and there because of naive defending. They simply cannot afford it. Right. So they have to fix this kind of stuff and do it soon if they have any hope of actually competing in the toughest qualifiers in the world. Right. And under Baritso, though, this is, this is quite a significant change of style we've seen from Paraguay. You know, they are now dominant. You know, they now look to dominate the ball in games. Um, you know, a lot of their great defending and the great defensive Paraguay sides of the past. The reason why they were so effective is because that's what they trained at doing. They were set up to defend. This side is not necessary, necessarily set up to, on, on the focus to, to, to defend first. And when you do come out and play a little bit, you are a lot more susceptible to making those kind of mistakes that they made for these Peru goals. 
So the question there, Adam, and this is something that we'll see, I think, as this cycle plays along, is does Paraguay have the talent to play that sort of style? Next up, yeah. they play Venezuela. You look at that match. Okay, that's a match that Paraguay can probably take to the Venezuelans and have some success. But as this goes on and as they face Colombia and Argentina and Uruguay and Brazil, is that style of play going to work for this Paraguay side with the talent that they have? I think that's a big question and one that we'll certainly be keeping our eyes on. Exactly. Let's move on to, I think, what is unfortunately probably the least entertaining of the five matches, but still a big result. Argentina won, Ecuador nil at La Bomanera. Uh, I'm going to start with Tom. Winners go first, right? Before getting the Ecuadorian perspective on this match. <laughs> Tom, a 1-0 result for Argentina. A Lionel Messi penalty. Uh, interesting performance on the other side from Ecuador that we'll get to in a moment. All things considered, again, Argentina, like every other nation in this qualifying cycle, facing a lot of challenges. They haven't played together in a long time. There's players out and missing. It's not the Argentina side that's going to win the World Cup, but it's three points. And with a tricky trip to La Paz, I think Scaloni will be overall fairly pleased with what went on uh, on Thursday night. Yes, I think you have to count that type of game as really as a must win uh, for Argentina, especially as, like you say, the next game is away in La Paz, which traditionally ends in defeat for Argentina just because of the altitude, which they find impossible to play at. Um, So, yeah, really, I mean, the headline would just be that it was, uh, I think, an underwhelming uh, Argentina victory. I think I called it a disjointed Argentina on Twitter after the game. And really, yeah, it was it was just this because you you know uh, we'll get on. I'll let uh, Saria talk about the Ecuadorian performance, but they came in a very very sort of solid low block, really, in just a, a four one four one sort of formation, and sat very deep. And um, they had that just that very one deep midfielder trying to just fill in that space between the defense and the midfield. You know that space that Messi likes to drop into and. And start his one twos and, and get a move really, uh, an attack sort of moving. Uh, so that space was just completely closed down. You know, Ecuador sat very tightly. They have a manager in charge who's an expert at doing that in Alfaro. So there weren't a huge amount of spaces on offer uh, for Argentina to have the ball comfortably. Uh, the centre backs and the defenders had it comfortably. You know, Ecuador didn't really do any sort of high pressing like you see a lot of teams do in the modern game. They they just sat off Argentina and, and let their centre-backs, let Otamendi and, and Martinez Cuarta just sort of have some fairly sterile possession. But as soon as Argentina tried to take it, you know, 40 or 50 yards from Ecuador's goal, then they just didn't really find any spaces in which to work in. Um, now, of course, like you say, there's a huge sort of renovation or... Um, you know, a, a real changing of the guard in Argentina. They're still trying to find an identity. They're still trying to find a solid 11, a, you know, a real first choice 11. And you could tell all of these things were really clear to tell. Well, one of the things that I feel has hurt Argentina over the years is just the sheer quantity of players who do have a shout at getting in this team. You know, they're one of the countries that has to pick from probably the widest pool of players who are at international standards, certainly in South America. You know, after Brazil, they'd be the country with the most options. And they tend to try all these options out as well. So, you know, you, you see them make two, three, four changes from one game to another. They try different options in midfield. They try different options in central defense. I can't remember the last time I saw the same central defensive partnership play 
more than two games in a row together. So, yeah, they're just trying to find a way to really integrate all those informed players. Um, obviously, Lucas Ocampos and Papu Gomez would be the two really informed players uh, from an Argentine perspective at the moment. So Gomez was on the bench and Ocampos started. But, um, yeah, it was a frustrating night for Argentina, even though they got into the lead early, uh, which I think was crucial as well because Ecuador looked as if they would be able to just soak up those those 90 minutes in, in and get the nil-nil result, which I guess they were hoping for. Um, but, it, you know, the key factor was that they opened them up early. Ecuador gave away a stupid penalty, really. It, there was no need to... To, to, to make that foul on Ocampos and give Messi the chance after, I think it was only nine minutes to put Argentina ahead. Um, so they'll be very frustrated about that. But from that point onwards, Argentina looked sort of in control, comfortable, but unable to do any real further damage to Ecuador. You know, if you look back through the highlights of the game, they'd be very short because Argentina just weren't able to create any real clear chances. Um, so... Overall, yeah, you know, you could call it a, a sort of underwhelming or a disjointed victory, really, for Argentina. And on the rare occasions that Ecuador did come at Argentina, Tom, the Argentine defense certainly didn't look as composed as you would hope. They kept a clean sheet, but that was maybe more because of what Ecuador did. So that's, and it's been the question for Argentina for a long time. What does that defense look like, and can they keep Argentina in matches if the attack maybe isn't functioning on all cylinders? And I don't think we have the answer to that yet, do we, Tom? No, we don't. Um, we didn't get any closer to finding it out on, on Thursday either because, like I say, Ecuador really they just played with one man up front. And, yeah, they didn't exert a lot of pressure on Argentina, but the small chances or the small sort of very modest moves forward that they had, they you know, they did – sort of exposed a little bit of chaos and a little bit of weakness in the Argentine defence. Uh, there's a lot of talk, again, about who should play in that defence here in Argentina. Otamendi started in central defence, even though it's fairly obvious that his best days are behind him. There are some other players, such as Lisandro Martinez at Ajax, who a lot of us here in Argentina expected to be called up and even start the game. Uh, but that wasn't the case. So, yeah, you do fear for Argentina if they come up against, uh, you know, the teams with more quality up front, you know, Brazil, Uruguay uh, and Colombia especially. Um, you know, they could really expose Argentina defensively from what we've seen so far. So, Javier, on that point, now shifting to the Ecuadorian kind of approach to this match, with such a shaky backline from Argentina, it was perhaps a bit of a surprise that Ecuador, particularly after they went down a goal so early on in this match, was not as adventurous going forward as maybe you would have expected. And granted, part of that is probably due to the fact that Gustavo Alfaro is the manager of Ecuador. And Javier, this was a very much a Gustavo Alfaro-type performance, uh, a 1-0 loss that was played almost seeming like he thought Ecuador were still hanging on to a point for the majority of that second half. Look, um, honestly, on Thursday night, I thought I was going to focus on the negative because, boy, there's a lot of things to say negatively about the performance. Now, after a few days, I've, been had, I've had the chance to come down and just focus on the positive side, which there's a few things. Right. So earlier, Adam uh, mentioned the Football Today podcast, right? I was uh, invited to join that podcast a few months ago to talk about the Jordi Cruyff process in Ecuador, right? We all know how that went or how that didn't go. 
long story short, my conclusion was that Ecuador needed two things, right? Like out of Jordi Cruyff and now out of Alfaro. They, one, need an identity they can believe in and play in. Um, clearly, Al- clearly, Alfaro has an identity that he's trying to instill in the team, right? Um, and the Argentine media has told everyone and every journalist in Ecuador, like, do not be surprised. This is Gustavo Alfaro. Get used to it, right? So it's something that we're getting used to it. Um, and I believe that this identity could actually help us because, for example, since 2002, the the most offensive Ecuadorian teams are the ones that actually didn't go to the World Cup. However, the most offensive Ecuadorian teams had the chance to go to the, to, to the World Cup, right? So if we focus on the defensive side, we can exploit our biggest strength while limiting our biggest weaknesses. So if that's the identity that we're moving forward and that we're obviously just beginning because Alfaro just got hired because of all the debacle of what happened with Cruyff, right? He's going to need time to instill those principles, right? So it makes no sense for me and for most of Ecuadorians to be or expecting a lot from someone that has had, what, a few training sessions for the national team at best. So... That's on one side. And the second point that this Ecuadorian team needs, besides an identity, is to be able to play and perform with passion, right? To show that love for the national team that we haven't seen in so long, right? That's something that will hopefully come with time. Some players are already showing it. Some players that after the indiscipline event, event that happened recently have a new chance to show themselves in the national team. They are very grateful and playing that level. For example, Robert Bolea was fantastic during the game, right? And he is one of the center backs that cannot be moved. Um, having said that, I believe that Alfaro made a few controversial choices, right? Either to make a statement or because he really believes in those choices, right? Like players like Eric Ferigra, Javier Arriaga, or Renato Ibarra, that most of them are new to a national team or have a better alternative on the field, or they have in Ibarra's case, shown that after several performances with the national team, he continuously disappoints on the field, right? Now, on the other hand, Argentina made also some controversial choices, and I'm pretty sure, I don't know where Tom stands in this case, but, for example, they played Perez and Paul and Acuna in a very defensive mo- uh, role when, in all fairness, Ecuador was never going to try to push or pressure Argentina. And even if you maybe predicted that they would, once you saw them play on the field, right, it took too long to fix, right? Argentina should have moved forward earlier because Ecuador wasn't even pressuring, right? Um, however, so moving into the game now specifically, uh, I believe it was a game of two halves, right? In the first half, Argentina was clearly superior. Um, that penalty kick really happened because of Carlos Gureso and Moises Caicedo stumbling and losing the ball in the midfield. That was just a clear example of how one of the two biggest weaknesses in Ecuador for this game was that there was no build-up phase plan, right? Like, there was no way to progress the ball all the way from defense to midfield and from from midfield to forwards. There was no plan, no... And we were limited by players like Carlos Gureso that continuously his decision-making keeps showing that he's a liability for the national team. Um, And in the penalty kick specifically, clear penalty kick, nothing to complain about. However, 
coming from Paris Tupinian, who, who is probably the most hyped player in the national team right now because of his performance in Spain, in Spain, really surprised us with a very rookie penalty kick, right? Because it's something that you expect from a very young player that cannot control his body and his intensity, right? You shouldn't expect that from someone that is a left back for the Villarreal team, right? Um, however, very well played for Lucas Ocampo, right? Um, for my biggest concern with the penalty kick in regards of Pervis is that Ocampos wasn't, didn't have even a body angle to make a pass into the box. So there was no reason why to go to the ground, right? That made no sense. Like I said, it was a clear rookie mistake. Now, in regards of Ecuador, Alfaro clearly played a very low block, right? Like you could see that from the beginning, even the confrontation line was so inside the core national team that Ener Valencia wasn't even uh, a part of it, right? The, the pressure started from the wingers and from the midfielders, not with Ener Valencia. So that first half, Argentina was all over us, right? And they had all the liberty to play in the back. Now, I did like this combination of Ocampos and Messi on the field. That was pretty good for Argentina, made things hard for Ecuador. Um, Ocampos actually really complements Messi very well. Now, Ecuador defensively did a very ad adequate job, right? Like Tom discussed, there were no really very dangerous chances that we can discuss, right? Ecuador's real problem was in the offensive transition game and in the build-up phase. For the transition phase, there was no plan how to get the ball to the offensive side. The clearances from the defense were not even long passes, right? Like I always like to say or like to teach defenders when I coach that if you're going to clear the ball, Try to have a plan predetermined, right? So, for example, if you're on the right side, make sure that you clear the ball to the left side so your left winger has space to run into the into that ball in case that it's not a very direct pass or things like that. However, the quarter clearances were, went anywhere. There was no plan for the transition game, which the problem is that that kind of lack of plan renders some players useless, right? So, for example, since we didn't have a real tr offensive transition game, players like Alan Franco, Angel Mena, Renato Ibarra had nothing to do because the we were defending and then we were, there was a clearance that went to Ener. Ener didn't get it and then Argentina started playing again, right? So, it's a, a huge problem for the national team. Now, since there was no build-up face game, really hurt us to have players like Carlos Grueso, like I said, because his decision-making in the field is not great, that limit us to get the ball from defense to midfield and from midfield to forward, right? Uh, there were a few, a few key plays that showed um, how having players like him limit limits us, right? So, for example, in, this, in the 30s, there was this opportunity in which a defender passed the ball to Grueso. Grueso, instead of turning into a space where he had behind him, he passed the ball back to a, mid a defender that was in between two Argentinian forwards, right? That was a terrible decision. That's one. And in the 50s, in the second half, right, as you would know, when you're a midfielder, right, you have to understand how numbers work, right? Like, so if you are not under pressure, you're not forced to pass, right? Unless you have a very clear opportunity to make a great pass, right? You have to wait for the pressure to come so you open up space for your other teammates, right? So Carlos Rezzo, without any pressure, made a diagonal pass to the right side where there were more defenders than attackers, so there was no way to receive that ball. And it's just two possession lo loss from the team that shouldn't have been there, right? Um, long story short, a course performance in the first half was very disappointing. Um, defensively, we were okay. However, offensively, it was kind of sad because we played during the first 10 minutes that we were 0-0 the same way that we played the, the rest of the first half when we were down 1-0. 
right? You would expect him to, if you're losing, to maybe change a few things to start moving the team forward. Now, the second half was a different story, right? Like, so Ecuador takes Ferigra out, that was playing right back when he's really a center back. He puts Preciado in, which was a great move because you provide width and depth to the right side of the possession game for Ecuador. Right. However, the real key improvement was moving the confrontation line higher up. Right. We force Ecuador to pressure a little bit higher on the field. Right. So um, like Georgian Club always says that you pressure up and your high pressure is like having an additional creative player. Right. Because you can score goals out of mistakes from the other team. Right. So that actually benefits Ecuador quite a lot. And it also helps with the ball progression. That was a huge issue in the first half. Right. However, even though we played better and looked better, it didn't really end up with dangerous opportunities, right? Because the few chances that we had didn't end up in actual dangerous shots, right? Like we took dangerous spaces, we attempted crosses in, in dangerous positions, but those crosses didn't end up in the right player's feet. Right. Now, again, and one of the things that should be concerning for Argentina is that Argentina wasn't scary either, right? The second half was. It's pretty much like the first half, a few movements here and there, like good individual skills from players, but not really dangerous opportunities, right? So that seems very concerning. Now, like I said from the beginning, on Thursday, I was frustrated and angrier than what I am right now. It is true that Argentina is not the powerhouse that they used to be. However, this result was the projection already. So it wasn't in the budget already for Ecuador, right? We never expected to beat Argentina in Argentina, right? That's um, very realistic. Javier, did you take some yes. Zen pills or something between Thursday and now? <laughs> Can you lend me some? Because I, I haven't calmed down. So, if you... <laughs> Well, I can sure recommend a few things. They come in glass bottles. Uh, so don't worry. I've got a rum and coke on the go as we, as, uh, as we speak. So, yeah, that has helped <laughs> to improve my mood a little bit. Exactly. Without that, it's hard. National teams are very frustrating. Anyway, so this, this result was in the budget already. Um, However, in hindsight, it's frustrating because now that you see the game, it was achievable. But my positiveness comes from my initial thought, right? Like Alfaro seems like a coach very focused in his own style, a style that benefits Ecuador's strengths and limits its weaknesses. With a little more time and with the right team on the field, because and if I touch this subject, I will be here forever, so I'm not going to go into detail. But there, they, there are some players that need to play in order for that system to work. And they were not on the field, either from the beginning or at any point, right? So I believe that Alfaro might might be able to give us identity that we need. If that identity is going to come alongside effort and passion, we don't know that yet. And even if it does, we we don't know if it's going to be enough to get fourth or fifth spot in this tight qualifier. However, it did show that we are in a transition phase, right? We ended up having six players that were under 22 years old taking the field, including one of my favorite and Adam's favorite, Moises Caicedo, that had an acceptable game. Not great, but it was an acceptable game. And if this is the beginning uh, of the new... Of, I, thought, yes, I, thought, I think, you know, put Moises uh, Caicedo's performance in context, you know, he had barely played a professional match at the start of the year. We've had, in that time, we've had a pandemic which stopped football for five months. So technically, he's in about the third month of his professional career and he's making <laughs> his debut in a World Cup qualifier away to Argentina. 
yeah, of course there's gonna there's probably a mistake in there for nerves and everything. But yeah, like you say, in the overall context context, he did fine. And you know, he didn't look out of place generally. And that bodes well for the future because he is definitely a player, I'm sure you agree, that Ecuador are gonna have to build around. For for sure, and building up on your context, right? Like he played uh, with Carlos Grueso behind him and Alan Franco in front of him, right? So probably one of the two weakest players on the field for Ecuador, right? Arguably, okay, arguably. Anyways, right? Like that adds even more on the context, right? Like that's one of the biggest reasons why he is the player that lost possession the most for the national team, right? He was in a very difficult position to be in with a lot of responsibility with not that many, not more experience. So it's an expected result. However, I'm all in in seeing him play, seeing him make mistakes because that's what young players do and that's how they grow, right? So I'm all in for this Moises Caicedo adventure that we're about to uh, undertake. Nice, Javier. Thanks for that. Simon, um, your thoughts on this one, the three points for Argentina, and as, as Javier said, I think an interesting point, you know, this was not a match that I think Ecuador going into this qualification cycle expected to get anything from. Having said that, how the match itself actually played out, that might be a disappointment for them. Yeah, for me, I mean, I didn't expect this, but what I was impressed with was um, how well Argentina pressed. Um, now, obviously, uh, Ecuador began the play very deep and that and that drew the pressure. But I thought Argentina, given that they was, you know, Messi there and Lauto Martinez, I was impressed with how they pressed Ecuador. And I was also impressed with how the Ecuadorian defenders dealt with that press. So for me, like the most interesting play was Ecuador passing out through a pretty decent Argentine press um, into the midfield. But then obviously Harry's right that they didn't necessarily progress the ball further forward. And uh, Valencia at time was isolated up front. So for me, that was impressive from Ecuador, how the centre-backs dealt with that pressure, um, how Argentina were very organised. Um, but on the ball, they, they weren't particularly exciting, Argentina. And um, I mean, basically, the best way to attack Argentina is give the ball to Otamendi, um, close off the passing options, and then just <laughs> begin to press him, and then he'll, he'll give you the ball. I mean, he's really quite poor at passing. It's incredible that... Uh, a guy who's played under Pep Guardiola for years at Manchester City is seemingly incapable of passing the ball. Um, so I think I think um, Ecuador played quite uh, an effective, measured game. But I look at that Argentine defence and I think you want to get the ball onto that defence because Argentina defended better from the front than they did at the back. Um, so for me, I, I think... Ecuador were well-balanced and careful and quite effective in what they did, but a lot of their best play came around their own penalty area, uh, passing out from the back and getting past that initial press. Whereas in the last 20 minutes, when you saw a little bit more pressure on the Argentine defence, they looked a bit shaky. So I think this Argentina team might struggle against perhaps a more chaotic opposition who maybe keep things a bit more simple because I just don't rate their defenders. and And I think... Uh, as well as the structure functioned in pressing further forward, as soon as you get the ball to the centre-backs um, and you close off the options, um, they struggle to find the pass and uh, and, they, and they can be kind of got at. So that sets us up perfectly for an Argentine away trip to a to a Bolivian side that's been West Can I introduce altitude into the equation for you? 
exactly. Well, well that, um, as, as, as an extension of what you're saying there, Simon, there's an, also a debate which I was watching on Saturday afternoon on the, the sports programs in Argentina, and they were talking about who is the the what they call here the number five, which is the defensive midfielder. Who is the defensive midfielder? You know, they had Mascherano for an entire generation. He's gone. Who is the real, genuine, tackling defensive midfielder? I mean, they play Paredes there, but he's a guy that's better at distribution than he is at, at, at marking or tackling. So uh, you add that into the equation, you know, some suspect defenders, and there's also a lack of this, this cinco, as they call it here. So that sort of intensifies the problem as well, really. Yeah, I think Argentina are going to be potentially as fun as they were last time in terms of uh, a lot of quality. And the, the process looks positive. But I still think if you put pressure in front of that defence um, and with the attacking fullbacks they have now as well, you know, I think I think Argentina might um, be a little bit open in certain games. Uh, although I was impressed defending from the front, which obviously will be important as well to kind of give a bit of stability to the side. Um, I sort of, if I can just add one question for Javier there. Um, obviously, Ecuador, if you're going to get to this World Cup, you're going to need to finish in the top four or five places in this group. Is there a feeling within Ecuador that Alfaro is going to be able to win the key games that you're going to have to win? You know, you're going to have to beat Paraguay when they go to Ecuador, beat Peru, beat arguably Chile or Uruguay when they visit Ecuador, you know, you're going to have to pick up all these points if you want to qualify for the World Cup. So is Alfaro going to be able to open up a bit more and, and threaten these teams? Or do you just think that's not in his makeup? I wish I knew more about Alfaro than I do. Mm-hmm. Um, the feeling is at this point that it's not very optimistic, right? Like we obviously have a very emotional market and population in which we have been building up frustration after frustration with all the this disaster that the federation is showing the change of president change of coaches contracts money debt uh the 2020 plan that didn't go through well that it's still supposed to go through but with other people that were supposed to undertake it without cordon without Cruyff, and so on so honestly what i can say is that i it's baby steps at this point, right? It makes no sense for us to start thinking about the end of the qualifiers when we have had a few training sessions with a coach that was just hired that is starting to establish an identity with a new generation of talent that he needs to include in the team while facing out some players that should not be a national team anymore. So if I would have to give you a straight answer, I would say that the feelings are not very positive. Um, However, the identity that Alfaro plans to install, I think, is the right one for us to be able to have a chance. Just let Independiente de Valle run the Ecuador national team. <laughs> that is and my I, solution. I know, I know, I know. That, that's, that is a very, very smart suggestion. Part of the issue is that the Independiente is the exception to the rule, right? It's his, Independiente is the one team in Ecuador that plays the style of play that Independiente does, right? This this open attack, technical development, technical focus style, they're the only ones, right? And installing that in a national team that doesn't have the chance to train that often and to play that kind of system and doesn't have all the players required to perform that system, then it's hard to, to sell that idea. Even though I don't disagree, if we wanted to implement that a very offensive style, the Independiente base should be the key. 
I'm with you, Adam. I think they should just let the Independiente del Valle team represent Ecuador. Pejorano's been there long enough that he can probably be Ecuadorian by now, right? Uh, moving on to our next match that we're going to break down. Simon, I'll bring you in a easy, I think it's fair to say, 3-0 win for Colombia against Venezuela. Um, this probably, Simon, won't be the best performance. Hopefully, at least from your perspective, it's not the best we'll see Colombia play. But it is never a bad thing in World Cup qualifiers to pick up three easy points at home with relative, you know, without any sort of difficulty. And that's exactly what Colombia did on Friday night. Yeah, and I think it's first important to say that uh, Venezuela were missing some of their most important players. Um, the COVID situation has meant plenty of teams have lost one or two here or there. Um, but for Venezuela to lose uh, Solomon Rondon, the, the, the big nub, number nine target man, um, because of being a, unable to travel out of China, uh, and then also losing Soteldo uh, to, I believe, as an injury in the end, but he wasn't able to be included in the squad. And then even Fernando Ares de Guieta um, was included in the squad and did get onto the bench, but he only arrived a couple of hours before because his uh, COVID evidence has, uh, was out of date. So he had to go and come back and get another flight. And then uh, it, was, it was a bit of a mess for Venezuela. So um, this was Venezuela with a few key absentee absences and also a team that's looking very flat. Um, Colombia didn't play particularly well. Um, they used the, I mean, ninety-one percent possession throughout the, for across the team is is pretty crazy. Um, so uh, there was a horrible injury to Santiago Arias. Uh, I think thirteenth minute, uh, it was like a broken ankle, up to six months, maybe four months. Uh, but it was a it was a clean break, and and that can be good and bad. But it was a, definitely a horrible one to see, and it definitely had an impact on Colombia as well. They started quite controlled. It, the first ten minutes, both teams sounding each other out, and then with that injury, you thought maybe maybe Colombia were going to be affected. And uh, uh, Stefan Medina came on and immediately helped set up the the first goal, uh, which was a really nice bit of play and. Uh, Duan Zapata finished it off, but it was it was Medina finding uh, James who put through Cuadrado. Cuadrado whipped a ball across the penalty box, and uh, Duan Zapata finished it off uh, on 16 minutes. Uh, Luis Muriel then doubled the lead with another powerful shot. Perhaps Wilco Farinas could have done better, uh, and then again another another breakaway, and, and Muriel runs through and, and makes it three uh, 0 at half time. Um, my my girlfriend's sister walked in and said, oh, is it 3-0? And she said, having watched the first 25 minutes, she saw the 3-0 scoreline in the second half and, was, and said, I keep so. Like, she felt really bad for Venezuela because it, it was definitely a game where um, it, it, it didn't seem conceivable that Venezuela would score. They got off 11 shots on goal, but watching the game and, and the, the threat, it seems hard to, hard to imagine. Um, in terms of the way Colombia set up, 4-3-3 now looks like it's going to be the Carlos Quieres system for Colombia. Uh, and that does work very well, given that that's the role James is playing for Everton. So James played on the right wing, but obviously uh, floated all over the place. And and Cuadrado played on the right-hand side of a midfield three, but often overlapped uh, James on the outside. Um, so there was, it was a good, it was a good, side, a good performance from Colombia. They didn't play particularly well. They used the ball okay they didn't lose it very often but they didn't uh, look particularly um dangerous in possession but the game was won so early really it was hard to it was hard to kind of judge that area of the game what you can say is that Colombia have a lot of pace 
Uh, Mojica was very dangerous from the left-hand side, overlapping Muriel. So on the left, there was a lot of pace. On the right, there was uh, Medina, who came on for Arias. Medina had a very good game at right-back. Um, and he used the ball very well with Hammers drifting inside and then Cuadrado providing the width on the right-hand side. So there's a lot of fluidity. And when Colombia break with pace, um, there's a lot of... A lot of uh, a lot of danger in that attack. The the three Atlanta guys, Mojica, Muriel and Duvan Zapata were very good. Falcao came off the bench in the second half. And before the game, Falcao as well was um, sending out the tweet saying, guys, look, we appreciate the support, but make sure you're careful with the COVID. Don't congregate. You know, let's be responsible. And I think Falcao is really taking an ambassadorial role. Uh, for this Colombia side. He's, he's leading a lot of the messaging, but he was on the bench and uh, seemingly happy with that role. I think Duran is definitely the clear number nine for Colombia. Um, but having Falcao come off the bench and uh, perhaps offer that penalty area nous in the second half is is a good thing. Jedi Mina and uh, Davinson Sanchez at the back, very, very solid. Mina's passing out of defence is I think underrated still, but he's very, very composed for Colombia. So surprising that Vargas got the shouting goal ahead of Montero. Um, Vargas had been involved in squads, I think 45 squads without making a a competitive start. He got the nod last minute over Montero, which was definitely a last minute decision. Um, But it didn't really matter who was in goal. There was a couple of saves on Vargas, but I think I could have uh, kept a clean sheet in this one. Um, So, so far, so good for Colombia. They didn't have the greatest game. But they showed a lot of the attacking potency, a lot of pace, uh, and they were very slick and very controlled throughout. So, so far, so good. Adam, a two-part question for you here. Firstly, a disappointing performance definitely from Venezuela, if you want to touch on that a little bit. But secondly, looking ahead to Colombia now going to Santiago to face Chile, this performance from Colombia, does it give you a, a bit of hope is probably not the right term. But there, there's enough to attack here for Chile in this next match that it's probably not going to be as easy for Colombia in Santiago as it was in, in Barranquilla against Venezuela. Yeah, I, I didn't really want to look too deep into Colombia's performance here because I, I did kind of feel that Venezuela kind of gifted them the game, really, uh, by leaving themselves so open uh, on the counter and also... But yeah, basically, if you leave the amount of space that Venezuela do between their lines and between their players, then yeah, it's, it's going to be very easy to exploit that. Um, but basically, how Chile play, and and as we saw in Uruguay, they basically are the opposite of that. You know, the whole team is very tightly knit together. Um, you can easily draw a square around the 10 outfield players on the pitch a lot of the time very compact um so yeah it would be a very different challenge for for colombia in santiago on tuesday although colombia are near full strength whilst as i mentioned earlier chile are nowhere near full strength so it's definitely a good opportunity for the colombians to take something in santiago um you know the last couple of times you know they have managed a win and a draw here in chile so you know, they will probably be quite confident. Although last year's Copa America quarterfinal, Chile dominated that and eventually won it on penalties. So, yeah, it's, it's going to be a fascinating game. Um, as for Venezuela, yeah, disappointing, not wholly unexpected though. Um, 
you know, since Dudamal went and, and sort of left the setup after everything, it felt like everything that he worked on over the years was maybe starting to come together at the end of the last World Cup qualifiers. Um, but ultimately, sort of performances after that um, meant that, you know, it, they wanted a change in the end. And yeah, now I just see a side which is very confused with its identity. Um, not too dissimilar to Paraguay, really, where I think that maybe the strengths of their side aren't being focused on and they're trying to be possibly a little bit more expansive, trying to dominate possession away to Colombia is a, is, a, is, a, is brave, but I'm not sure they have the ability to, to do it effectively. And, and, and so it proved really in this game. And, and also a big worry for me is, you know, we've bigged up Wilco Farinias on this pod a lot in the, in the last few years, but, you know, his performances last year in the Copa America and also um, in this game, it's a real worry. You know, he's struggling to get games um, for um, the French team that he joined, Lawrence as well. Um, yeah, there's uh, there's definitely been a certain amount of regression in in his in the standard of his performances in goal, and you know he was so key when they did start picking up results at the end of of the World Cup qualifying campaign for Russia 2018 after you know a terrible start. So yeah, it's uh, yeah they're a work in progress as are all sides. I think we should really point this out. You know, South American sides have barely played any football in the last uh, in the last year. So you're always going to get sides looking, yeah, not exactly um, very cohesive or or on top form during these during these qualifiers. Which is why I was quite pleased with Chile's performance, really, given the amount of uh, players missing. Um, so yeah, that, that's why I'd be optimistic for Colombia game. But yeah, for Venezuela, I, I do worry for them in in this World Cup qualifying. Um, uh, especially if they if they aren't going to have Rondon available anytime soon, who is so key to them being able to apply pressure in the final third of 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 the pitch with with his ability to hold the ball and, and bring others into it. Right. Well, let's touch finally on the last match to break down here for match day one: Brazil five, Bolivia nil. Adam, Bolivia said they were coming to São Paulo to win. Uh, didn't see much of that on the night, did you? <laughs> no, um, yeah, I think uh, I think it, that was a very optimistic statement heading into this one. You know, Brazil, of course, famously have never lost a World Cup qualifier at home. Um, Bolivia um, have barely ever won an away uh, away World Cup qualifier. Um, I think they've got the current record. Actually, I think it's over forty games without a win away from home. <laughs> I believe it's 56 and 1993 was the last right. time won a World Cup qualifier away from home. Yeah. So, you know, <laughs> and the fact that as as you pointed out in your excellent pod with Simon um, last last week, uh, you know, they'd left um, a number of players back in La Paz to concentrate to prepare for the Argentina game. So, you know, they are basically if you'd offered this, if they were being honest and you offered Bolivia a 5-0 defeat before this game, I think they probably would have taken it. And once that first Brazil goal went in, 
you saw a number of heads drop as soon as the ball hit the back back of the net as they knew, you know, they basically didn't have a hope of getting anything once that first goal went in. We have seen Bolivia over the years manage to grind out a nil-nil in surprising circumstances. I can remember them doing it against Argentina once. I think it might have been in the Copa America rather than the World Cup qualifier. Um, I remember them doing it to Brazil once and obviously they did it to Chile before you know that got turned into a 3-0 for an in administration error um, in in the last set of World Cup qualifiers. So you know but if, if everything does go for them on the night they are capable of getting that nil-nil draw but the fact they had so many players missing in this one meant that was always going to be very unlikely. And this game was probably, you know, on paper, this game you would say is the most predictable of all of the World Cup qualifiers, I would say. And, yeah, I think most people would predict something like a 5-0 win for Brazil. And then that's what we got. Yeah, Adam, as you said, it was early, it was often, it was composed, and it was everything Brazil would have wanted. and. Probably everything that, as you said, if they were being honest, Bolivia expected. Marquinhos, the first goal from a set piece. I think Bolivia will be disappointed that they conceded from a set piece. You don't want to give a team that's as good as Brazil those type of opportunities. Uh, uh, Brace for Roberto Firmino. Uh, Some good finishes from him. A Bolivian own goal for the fourth. And then Felipe Cochino getting in on the act for the fifth for Brazil. Neymar. Played well for Brazil. He had a moment that I think if he would have been able to convert it, he would have won the Puskas. Um, spinning a Bolivian defender and first going through the legs of a Bolivian defender and then spinning another Bolivian defender, but he couldn't quite keep the touch after that. If that goal would have gone in, uh, Twitter would have broken, I think. But overall, this was a fairly expected result. I think we're all in agreement that We'd be surprised anything other than a comfortable qualification for Brazil. The questions for them will start once we actually look towards the World Cup. Um, and that could be a detriment for them that maybe they're not pu- going to be pushed enough in this cycle that when they do finally come up against top, top, top tier opposition, those questions still remain. Um, but this was good from Brazil at times in the past. Brazil have, you know, labored a bit more than expected in a matchup like this against a deep block against a team that doesn't want much of the ball. That wasn't the case here. Um, they nearly scored in the first minute. Uh, they were perhaps unlucky to have not scored by about three minutes into this game. So uh, everything Brazil would have wanted. Um, they now go to Peru, which I think is a very winnable match for them. Um, if Brazil ends up on six points, there's a chance that they might not be seen again at the top of this table. Um Tom, I want to bring you in before we close out this podcast because you talked about it earlier. We, I talked about it on my podcast with Simon. Adam mentioned it there. Nine Bolivians uh, in La Paz waiting Argentina's arrival. It's a trip that has always been tricky for Argentina, maybe more so than any other country on the continent. They struggle at altitude in La Paz. What do you expect from that match on Tuesday? I think it's fair to say that if it goes 5-0 against the Bolivians, that would be an absolute shock given what we've seen in the past from this matchup and given what we kind of expect from what we'll see on Tuesday. Um, Well, where do you really start with expectations for this game? I think it's in Argentina. It's the either the most feared game of the World Cup qualifying cycle or if Brazil is the most feared game, then you'd call this the second most feared game. Um, just because, you know, Argentine, Buenos Aires is at sea level, Rosario is at sea level, 
most of the places football is played in Argentina are at sea level, so they have absolutely no experience of playing regularly at altitude, even at 1,000 or 2,000 meters. Uh, and La Paz is at 3,600, if I'm not mistaken. Yeah, um, and also players play in Europe, so they don't have that experience. It's like you play altitude once every four years, and that's just so difficult to do. You know, you look at a Peru or an Ecuador, and there's a lot of players who are playing in South America. So they go through Libertadores, you know, they get drawn against Bolivar, they get drawn against the strongest. They have a bit more to go on. But with Argentina, that's just really not there. No, exactly. Yeah, they're more used to playing in Paris and Milan and, and in Manchester than they are playing uh, up in the Andes. What in, about West Bromwich? In, uh, West Bromwich is pretty high, isn't it, Tom? West Bromwich, yeah. The highest ground in England. How, how high is it? About 500 metres or something above sea level? <laughs> something like that, yeah. yeah. I, yeah, I've, yeah. Been, I've been there a couple of times. So I, I, I did feel a little bit sick, but I think that might have been the beer I had rather than the altitude. Yeah, well, I, I feel sick when I go there, but that's only because they're my local rivals. That's not because of anything to do with the altitude. Uh, but, <laughs> but anyway, we digress. But um, yeah, like you say, Austin, that, you know, expectations are low in Buenos Aires, to put it mildly. Um, you know, they were speculating on TV as to whether Argentina should just try and go with their youngest and quickest players, really, especially in wide positions, to try and offer some sort of threat because. You just can't expect the midfield to cover the ground at that altitude than they do, you know, as, as they do when they're playing at sea level. Um, and actually, interestingly, if any of you are wondering what the biology behind all this is, there was someone explaining it on Argentine TV today. And it's basically that people who live or are native to altitude, you know, their bodies produce enough red blood cells for the small amount of oxygen in the air to actually fuel the muscles. Now, if you're from sea level, you don't have that many red blood cells, so that's why you struggle so much when you play at altitude. So, and real biology lesson for you all there. Interestingly, one of the sort of developments we've seen, especially in the Libertadores in, in recent years, but I think it was a tactic Uruguay used when they won there in the last set of World Cup qualifiers, um, is that we're increasingly seeing teams turn up basically at the last minute um, to play, as that seems to reduce the effect of altitude it seems to be worse if you get there say a couple of days before the game it's either best to turn up really early or really late um i'm not sure exactly the science in that um right now off the top of my head but that's definitely something we've seen um certainly brazilian sides attempt in recent years in the Libertadores, and and the science they've looked into tells them that yeah they, they look to turn up at the last possible moment but of course I suspect that Argentina can't do that because of Covid restrictions and everything this time uh, I guess they're probably there already no? From what they said on TV they will be there two days before the game in this yeah. case um, but yeah like you say, it, it is a common tactic to go at the last minute. Yeah. From what I believe that's the worst um, but yeah, yeah we'll see. Exactly. Um, so, yeah, no, you, like you say, it is common to try and go to, you know, a team like River or Boca. If, if they play at altitude, they often go to Bolivia and stay in, in low, the low-lying areas of Bolivia because, remember, half of the country is sort of down at sea level uh, and then just fly into La Paz, you know, on the evening of the game at five or six o'clock. And, and apparently that's one of the ways to try and reduce the effects which kick in, you know, after about six hours of being at altitude. So, uh, yeah, it will be... An interesting afternoon, let's say, from uh, 4 p.m., I think it is, Eastern time on Tuesday afternoon. 
Adam, one final thing before we wrap this podcast up. I believe this is a product of COVID regulations, but correct me if I'm wrong. Each home team is actually using their own ball in this Carnival World Cup qualifying cycle. So can we expect like a beach ball from Bolivia? I, what, what do we expect from the Bolivian ball? <laughs> yeah, well, this is, game on this is something I picked up in commentary here in Chile in, in the last couple of days where they were discussing... Um, you know, this, this decision Commonwealth have made to just basically let teams choose their own match ball for, for home matches. And, uh, and yeah, for me, this could lead to all kinds of controversies whilst, uh, as we go on. And, and I'm especially looking forward to seeing what the Bolivian match ball does in the altitude of La Paz. I'm, I'm sure, I think they've already been practicing with it for a good two, three months. Um, so expect plenty of long distance shots um, from Bolivia against Argentina and possibly one or two of them to fly in. We've certainly seen it before in the past and um, I've got a feeling we might see it again on Tuesday. Well, they have a phrase here, Adam, in Argentina, which is la pelota no dobla. I don't know if they use that in Chile, but over here that means basically the ball doesn't turn. The ball doesn't come down at altitude. <laughs> yeah, I have keeps heard that, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Well, that is one of the five matches that will come your way on match day two. All of those matches taking place on Tuesday. Argentina going to La Paz to face Bolivia. Uruguay going to Quito to face Ecuador. Paraguay take on Venezuela. That match will be played in Merida. Brazil are in Lima to face Peru. And then I think the headlining match is Colombia in Santiago to face Chile. We'll have a podcast breaking all of that down for you after match day two. So be sure to be on the lookout for that. I know we've gone on long on time. We're almost done here. Going to go once around the table to let people plug some things. Tom, it's been great having you on the show again. Where can the listeners find you on Twitter, particularly with River Plate playing so well and looking to make another run at a Libertadores? I know you'll want the listeners to follow along for that. Thanks. Yeah, of course. Yeah, uh, like Austin says, my account is River Plate in English. Obviously, uh, take a lot of time to analyze the international football as well when we're during these times of the year. But yeah, River Plate in English, at carp underscore English. So yeah, please come and join the conversation there. Javier, great to chat with you. As always, appreciate your perspective. Where can the listeners find you on Twitter? And is there anything you'd like to plug? Well, there's nothing I would like to plug. However, you know that you can find me at at ZAVXAV in Twitter. I'm always down to have some peaceful conversations with no conflicts at all because that's how soccer twitter works no conflicts right so exactly yeah no conflicts ever uh simon for you on twitter where can the listeners find videos of alfredo morelos yeri mina dancing uh what else are you up to these days online are you, are you suggesting that i'm pandering to certain popular twitter audiences that i've plugged into um, yes. no. <laughs> okay. Well, yeah, you know, I've got, I've got my Everton fans, my Rangers fans. Nice to see you. You're my favourites. Um, yeah. So Twitter at Simon Edwards SAF. Um, plenty of stuff up there. Also, um, we have the Patreon with a lot of additional content. Um, there's city guides and all of the cities around South America. We've done five or six already. Um, there's also profiles on all of the top Colombian players. The next one coming out, I think, is John Jada Duran. Um, who is a 15-year-old uh, target man who just made it into the Guardian top 60. Uh, he's now uh, in the Columbia U20 squad, but he's been involved in Envigado for a while. So 
few quid, you can get yourself hours and hours of extra content. So give give that a go for, for this month. You can cancel any time if you're not a fan, but obviously helps us out. So there you go. And uh, yeah, looking forward to Tuesday's games. And Adam, yourself. Yeah, you can follow me at AdamBrandon84. Hope to have an article out maybe um, on on everything going on in Chile in sort of the last year or so and and the context of, uh, of the Chilean national team playing this October. Um, such important matches in such an important time for the country. Hope to have an article out somewhere on that in the next couple of days. So look out for that ahead of the Columbia game. You can find me on Twitter at Austin underscore James 906. A lot of scouting spotlight podcasts out there for you to take in. Matejo Bahamich just moved from a second division side here in Argentina to Houston Dynamo. We've got a scouting spotlight podcast on him uh, with my good pal Tom Tom Robinson. So be sure to check that out. Again, I know it was a long show, but I hope there was a lot in there for you, the listener. I know these qualifiers can sometimes be hard to follow from outside the continent. So hope that we've been able to give you some insight here to South America with this. We'll be back after match day two. We'll be back with Marley Bertadori's coverage after that. Again, thank you so much for listening. All that's left for me to say is goodbye.